Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Hey, we are live Sunday, coming right at you. It's uh, once again. This is Mike Sunspot, seeing the other side. American Ghost walks, hanging out uh, with my brethren uh, in weird, and I'm talking about uh, my literal brethren, my sister Allison. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. That's right, Sunday, 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 and <laughs> Big um, Daddy, Mike Huberty. My, <laughs> My rock and roll weird family, Wendy and Scott. Uh, how is everybody feeling on this fine Sunday afternoon? It actually is a pretty, It is a, if you had a chance to venture outside with your masks on, uh, it's a pretty nice day. Beautiful day. It's a beautiful I'm day feeling, in quarantine. <laughs> I'm feeling unkempt and pale. Oh. <laughs> yes. But, but we're starting to feel ripped from doing all these push-ups yeah. and uh, this, oh, the prison right. workout plan. Still working. You guys are still working on the old push-ups. Um, myself, uh, I have. You haven't seen. I haven't shaved now in five weeks. I like it. I want to see what happens. You look like a mountain man. <laughs> I look like Bob Seger, <laughs> or or like a Scot, a Scotsman. You know, like just a, need to like a mud on. Scotsman. <laughs> a Highlander. You look like a Highlander. That's it. I'll take that. I'll take that instead of a mountain man. Okay, just hope that everybody is doing all right with, uh, obviously, we are all still stuck inside or not supposed to hang out with other people. But they can't stop us from Skyping. We're going to Skype they can- every day. <laughs> That's right. They cannot stop us from speaking to each other over the internet. Um, and you know, this is going to be uh, episode 292 of the CU on the other side podcast. And we wanted to just talk about some of our favorite personal UFO stories, as well as uh, stories that we get from our listeners and the people who have been checking out the podcast. And I got to say, uh, I feel like ufology is a contentious field. You know what I mean? Because you have people at several levels. Um, because ufology is different than ghosts in a certain way because ghosts require a like they require that leap of faith right away in that the, the, there's idea there's a soul or an afterlife like you're immediately jumping that leap that there's a soul or an afterlife whereas in UFOs there's a variety of levels of belief that you can get to do you guys know what I, like the, the, yeah like s- starting with like just there's something weird in the sky Right. Okay. Just unidentified, uh, unidentified something. Anything. Right. <laughs> yeah. So you could start out with just something weird in the sky. You're like, okay, well, is it an alien? I don't know. It could be a, it could be a foreign spaceship. It could be a spy, not a foreign spaceship. But it could be a foreign airplane. It could be a spy satellite. It could be a now human could craft. Be, could be <laughs> right. swamp gas or a weather balloon. <laughs> right. Any kind of um, visual... You know, anomaly. anomaly. Yeah. And if, if you guys want the real story of the swamp guest, you're going to have to listen to our episode with um, Mark O'Connell, the guy that actually wrote the book on Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Literally. Of course, they, did, they didn't use any of, uh, 
<laughs> they didn't use any of that for the Project Blue Book <laughs> History Channel series, yeah. of course. Yeah, it's not based on any facts. <laughs> <laughs> no, whatsoever. But it is a lot of fun. Um, if you're, in, It's like an X-Files kind of show, but it is completely fictionalized. Uh, a version of uh, Dr. Hynek's life. They, they should start putting oh, the, anyway. the quotation marks around history channel, like like yeah. fancy right. ketchup, oh, yeah. you yeah. know? Absolutely. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've never I've never thought of the history channel as fancy ketchup before. <laughs> but, I mean, uh, I would to me it's more of the like hunts compared to like the National Geographic hunts. Nice. Um, nice. When you're comparing the, the ketchups of quality. <laughs> but we would definitely recommend Mark O'Connell's book, uh, Close Encounters Man. It's really good. That is and you're, thoroughly researched. It's a great book. And, um, it, you know, we were talking to him a couple years before he released the book. And he was, you know, talking about writing it. And he goes in the whole story of the swamp gas in the uh, See You on the Other Side episode. Uh, we interviewed Mark O'Connell for two episodes. Um, early on, we talked about his writing for Star Trek. And then we uh, talked about his research into J.L. and Hynek and why the swamp gas, like everybody was like, J.L. and Hynek is such a debunker because of the swamp gas thing. But when you um, listen to the actual story, you'll find out that uh, Hynek isn't, uh, isn't the bad guy that everybody said he was. You know, he's not, the, he's not the wild debunker that everybody said he was. So we'll have to put that link in the show notes. So starting out at that level, we can start with the there's just something weird in the sky level. That's interesting. Then there's the level of we don't think it's a human craft in the sky and it's an alien. And that, that is a leap of faith. You know, that, then we're starting a leap of faith. But, I mean, does anybody really think that aliens don't exist at all? elsewhere in the universe are there people that are like okay alien we are the only life earth is the only life I in the entire universe i think that's a minority position yeah i mean mm-hmm. i think scientists today will say that there has to be intelligent life somewhere in the vast universe they don't know if it's reached earth and some of them would argue that point but they don't argue the point anymore that there isn't other life right because I think that's some part of the idea of how we got here. You know, we evolved from some speck of life that came flying in on a meteorite that uh, took hold on Earth. So. Well, I mean, that's, that, one that's, I, that's a one controversial theory, theory <laughs> right. Scott. That's panspermia. And there are some scientists that put that forward, but there's a lot of scientists that don't like that idea either, that, that we were seeded somehow. You think back when this was just molten lava, well, life had to have come from somewhere then. I mean, we have to avoid the religious conversation. That's exactly what, because I was just going to say, you know, saying that there's no life out there is like saying, I know something that we don't know. We couldn't possibly know. (laughs) But then that's that's what faith is, right? I mean, essentially. So so never mind. We won't (laughs) won't go down that road. I think people (laughs) think that there was... Some chemical reaction that happened here that was fairly unique that uh, just came about from the primordial soup. Mm-hmm. And they don't like to say that, you know, maybe there was life somewhere else and, you know, some of those uh, bacteria or uh, viruses hitched a ride and then found a new home here. They, they prefer to think that, you know, some kind of chemical reaction brought it about here. Um, 
and it rather than it being somewhere else first. Sure. And well, I think, I mean, panspermia might be, you know, controversial, the idea of it. Um, the fact, I think it's more controversial, the idea that we were seeded by someone else rather than the idea that the chemical reaction could have come from something from a, a meteor or a, a, you know, a comet coming by the planet. I think it's to say that we were planted here like in Prometheus. Um, well, not, not talking about um, Quartermass or, or anything right. like that. You know, <laughs> um, I, you know, just the idea that even bacteria accidentally got here and started it all. Sure. Is controversial to some scientists, but certainly the idea that we were intentionally uh, put Planted. here is way out there. Well, so so that's so now we're talking about different more levels of belief because the thing is, um, yeah. So you're saying that okay, life exists out there in the universe, and other people, you know, everybody's like, yeah, that's got to be true, right? That's got to be true. And then you go to okay. Now that life is like flying by and visiting our planet, kind of like we do on safari or something like that. Yeah. And um, then there's the next level that they've made contact and they're here. Um, right. And, and that's the X-Files level, you know, that they, they, yeah. made, right, they right. made a deal with the government and that's they're keeping it from us. That's the disclosure level. I think of belief. So we come to like, okay, yes, that weird things can happen in the sky. Okay, sure, they might be aliens. Three, the aliens are here, the government knows about them, and they're hiding them from us. Um, right. And then even beyond that is the idea of, you know, exopolitics that we have to uh, prepare to enter into a federation of planets or something cool like, like that. The Anunnaki? But, Yes. Oh, the Anunnaki. That's a whole new. <laughs> How can other we forget thing about the Anunnaki? We Our friends, the Anunnaki. race of the Anunnaki. But oh, David let's, Icky. Let's, let's even. <laughs> Icky. Oh, David Icky. Yeah. Uh, let's even go beyond that and talk about. Um, talk about. So there's some people that are like, oh no, it's not nuts and bolts craft. They're not from another planet. They're actually fairies or demons who are deceiving you into thinking their intelligence is from another planet, but they really uh, originate uh, from here and um, are just uh, just pulling the wool over our eyes, uh, you know, presenting themselves as kind space brothers when they really want our eternal souls, or they just want to mess with us like fairies. I think that's a that's a fun that's always a fun theory. It reminds me of this game called Dark Conspiracy that was a, a role playing game that was in the nineties. And it was the idea oh, that Oh man, you love those nineties role playing games. <laughs> because ninety well, nineties role playing games were super dark. And that's what made them yes. fun. Like they had to be like, like what vampire, was the vampire one? Vampire the Masquerade Girl. That was the game <laughs> that we used to play. And that was you dress up like vampire. Like you you played the bad guy. And that was the idea. So that was the first time, instead of being the noble heroes who would slay the dragon in role-playing, you would be the vampires who had to feed on humans. You're the and LARPers the from what we do in the shadows. Oh, yeah. yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. No, we, we, I was a total LARPer. I, lived, I, lived the I will vouch for that. What was your character name, Mike? Oh, you know, I was the storyteller. So I wasn't just a character. I was like like ten different. Uh, it was like ten different characters. So when you we- you didn't take like your baptism or your um, confirmation name Cyprian right. and Cyprian. make that into your vampire <laughs> there character. You go. That's pretty good. I love That's that. A good one. But the thing is um, that since the live action game 
um, you would have the people who would play their characters, and then I would have like four or five people working with me who would play different other characters throughout the evening. And you would like turn your friend's basement into a nightclub. <laughs> um, like we like we like go to Spencer Gifts and get different colored lights and stuff like that. And we couldn't there were no booze. We were all under twenty one. And um but you'd have things that looked like wine or non alcoholic wine and stuff like that we'd serve. And then we'd all like just play the characters. And, and, and do the there, thing. there's and, no um, there's no age limit on animal blood. <laughs> I think you were skimping <laughs> out. We could have gotten a butcher, Mike. But um, nice. okay, en- enough. The thing is, I was a larper, and that's <laughs> we could go on for hours. The question is, but how much are, are you committed to your character? You know, okay, we, when, I'm we, done. We, when we had John Tenney on the show to talk about when like UFOs came back. Uh, in 2000, end of 2017, and we were talking about when the New York Times even thought it was cool like to talk about UFOs again. You know, he was mentioning that things are like happen in cycles, and UFOs were huge in the 1990s. Wendy, remember all the people like in college that had T-shirts that said things like "Take me to your dealer." It was like a <laughs> like a like a well, like a Roswell alien smoking a dube. I think a lot of it too had to do with the popularity of X Files at the time. Oh yeah, because that was. That was the so yeah that came back what ninety three or so and then just just, came, just grew and grew in popularity mm-hmm. and then ancient yeah. aliens in more recent years right yeah <laughs> so the so the aliens are back but the thing is the nineties it was it was dark like it was cool to be the bad guy and so like dark conspiracy was this game where you had the demons and the extraterrestrials team up together. To, to try to hunt down humans, like to, to change the human, like course of human history. Um, and so that was like, that's what makes me think of when I think of when you talk to certain religious people and they say like, well, UFOs and aliens and stuff, those are just demons trying to take your soul. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's why the Vatican has observatories all over the world. Think and about that's, it. that's level four. Well, no, but the thing is, but the, the same people who believe that usually believe that the Vatican, that the you know, the Pope is like a tool of the devil. Um, because even, you know, we were talking about how science, most scientists, the majority opinion is probably there is life, you know, somewhere else in the in the universe. And that is also um, the opinion of the the church, even the Vatican. You know, in 2012, the Vatican sponsors a meeting to discuss the chances of extraterrestrial life in Vatican City. You know, they were saying that uh, finding extraterrestrial life is like a quote, a detective chase, a crime to be solved, and we're getting very close to the answer. And this is a guy that was head of the um, Stewart Observatory in the University of Arizona's Department of Astronomy in Tucson. And he's at this Vatican conference where. these archbishops and priests are discussing the um, uh, the implications, the religious and spiritual implications that life exists elsewhere in the universe. And so, um, what's one thing that the Pope and like Richard Dawkins can agree on? It's the idea that there's probably extraterrestrial life in the universe, and that's probably the only thing they'll ever agree on. And so that's what makes, you know, I think that's what makes this uh, interesting. Oh, and uh, uh, Stephanie comes in and she's like, the Pope is an alien. Nice. <laughs> he, he might be. He might be. You know, um, funny enough, uh, we did have an episode of the podcast uh, with the Reverend John Polk. And he uh, claims that um, he's been visited many times by the people in space and that Jesus was an alien. 
So the Pope being an alien, that's not even quite off the mark um, from people we have uh, had conversations with in the past. Okay. Now we should probably start like the idea is some of our personal favorite UFO stories and maybe our own UFO experiences. And um, I have one. I have one. Okay. So let's start with people that have actually had a UFO experience here. And Allison, um, what can we debunk for you? (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm not saying it's the mothership. Uh, in fact, I don't think it is. I just don't know what it is. I mean, I've well, seen- we, you know, Wendy Scott and I believe in the mothership because we've. I mean, we've seen we've seen George Clinton's right. tour bus. We saw- yeah. <laughs> so we absolutely believe in the mothership. I just don't think well, it's alien. I absolutely believe in George Clinton. I mean, yeah, he is awesome. He has a superhuman abilities of uh, performance. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Yes, right. that's His right. whole clan. And great hair. Yeah. Yes, yes. Exactly. He's got superhuman so, funk. Yeah, definitely. Atomic Dog, still, I listen to that almost every day. I love that song. <laughs> anyway, right. so besides George Clinton, um, I, I, did, I did see something extraordinary. Now, I know it wasn't a drone. I've seen drones before um, during the day and at night. Uh, I've also seen Chinese lanterns, and it wasn't that either. So I'm not sure what it was, and it was a broad daylight sighting. And actually, it happened when I was um, still uh, working um, at a traditional school. And um, so I was driving to work, running a little late, and um, it was, let's see, it was about 7.25 in the morning, on Monday, September 26, 2016. I know because as soon as I got to school, I emailed Mike. Well, actually, first what I did is I brought my class to the classroom and we had a quick write. And what did we write about? We wrote about um, something extraordinary that has happened to you. And I just took that opportunity to write down all the facts as I could remember them. And then as soon as I had done that, I copied that to Mike and sent it so that I would have a record. Record. Good job, Allison. And I didn't, I, I didn't day. have I didn't have much like I wasn't able to answer it or pay a lot of attention because that was the date of my daughter's birth. So Allison, <laughs> yeah. you were a little busy a UFO sighting, and you know I would I had other things to worry about, unfortunately, rather than your UFO sighting, Allison. Yeah, I, well, I, what I wrote to you in this email is um, I saw some UFOs today at about 7.25 a.m. And I couldn't wait to tell you. Maybe it's a sign. Is it baby time? It's funny oh. that it was baby time. It was baby anyway, time. Anyway, um, I mean, I don't know why that would have any relation to aliens or whatever these things Well, are. you know, just but, to jump in really quickly, I think that's fascinating that it happened on Adelaide. The arrival date. So there, there are some people out there that wonder if aliens and UFO sightings are getting mixed up with angel sightings or if there's oh. some kind of a family uh, um, guardian angel connection there. And Cheryl Crow even has a great uh, song. First uh, song on her second album is called Maybe Angels, and it's actually about aliens. Um, yeah, interesting. Well, and I mean... I, I don't know why I would connect the two things, but I just, anytime anything peculiar happens, I guess I was like, maybe it's some kind of sign. So I wrote this, and then, of course, he didn't get back to me right away because it was baby time. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, I said, below is what I wrote for the kids today. So remember, these are fourth graders, so um, some of this 
might sound a little obvious, uh, but it's written for uh, fourth graders. Below is what I wrote for the kids so today. So you guys out there, quick you write. guys out there in the listening audience, it's actually for you. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. It's about at your speed. Wow. <laughs> Something oh amazing God. happened. Sorry. Something amazing happened to me this morning. No, my brother's baby didn't come yet, unfortunately. Well, actually, uh. it did. But anyway, this is what I actually wrote this morning. Uh, that morning. It was so we've already else. debunked we've already debunked your story. <laughs> I I was yeah, just that part. I was driving to school on Highway 43 southbound when I saw something strange in the sky. Actually it was two somethings. I wondered were they planes? But I couldn't stop and look because I was on the expressway. That means emergency stopping only. The objects were pretty high up. That's why I thought they were planes, but I actually saw two planes go by this morning also. These other objects didn't seem to be moving and they didn't have the blinking lights that planes have to have by law. They were like two groups of three bright white lights hovering there. One was much lower than the other and off to the right. What were they? I wish I could have stopped and taken some video. By the time I got off the expressway, the lights were in back of me and seemed to be getting smaller. I think maybe they were flares, but I'm not sure. They seemed to fade out instead of coming down like they were on parachutes. They also didn't really seem to move at all, just hanging motionless in the sky for at least five minutes. What do you think they were? So I have some details to add to this account. So I can't say how high up there they were. I mean, I was coming uh, under an overpass and they were seemed to be before the overpass and above the overpass, but it's really hard to tell how high something is up in the sky. Um, so I know they were above the overpass, but you know, I'm not sure of the exact height and that would, that would seem to uh, make it difficult to judge the size. But I know also that besides the fact of them being like three circular lights in a row, there was a, um, a dark um, rectangular form that they seemed to be seated in. So it was like a gray rectangle that had three white circles in it and then offset and to the right was another gray rectangle that looked exactly the same so that doesn't seem like flares it doesn't seem like anything of consequence it's just they were just hovering there so what do you guys make of that I would say that's unidentified. Yes. <laughs> those, those flying objects totally. are definitely unidentifiable. I'll also say I wish I saw that too. Yeah. I've never seen anything cool like that in the sky. Yeah. It was very bizarre. And I was like, are, aren't other people seeing this? And, you know, you just, it's life. You got to go to work. You got to do your thing. You can't just like, oh, I'm going like, to swerve, pull off the highway and take video. I did try to take something you know but i couldn't drive on the expressway and point <laughs> it's the not camera worth it to. i mean i made a half-hearted attempt and, and you call yourself phone, a researcher so. uh i was saying if you were a real researcher like i said john keel would have died for that oh, uh, yeah and so the fact, the fact that you didn't risk your life 
It's just, it's okay. It's just you're not. But I think in this day and age, John Keel probably would be walking around with a GoPro constantly, like (laughs) recording, right? Yeah. Strapped to his head. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and also, I mean, I'm not, I I think John Keel's obviously brilliant and and great writer and stuff like that. But I also think we tend to, um, I was thinking about this after our conversation with, um, uh, Ken Walker, who is he's done this amazing Bigfoot recreation, and you'll heard about him in um, our episode on Big Fur. And when I'm doing research on the Patterson Gimlin Bigfoot film, we tend to uh, like you know oh like Patterson and Gimlin like those guys were I mean they were hardcore researchers and stuff. We tend to forget everyone's failures and just think about the successes, and so we tend to canonize. The people that came before us when they still had there was plenty of mistakes and missteps. Right, but those things like aren't that. interesting. I thought about that too. <laughs> right, especially when you're thinking. And we all have our foibles. <laughs> well, of course we all have our foibles, but we, you know, it, it. Whenever you're looking to the past, uh, we always have to think about like let's look at the totality of evidence and remember that history is written by the victors and the whole thing. The other thing that made me think about that is when I was doing research into where the um, Amityville horror book was written. So where did Jay Anson write the book? Because Jay Anson never met any members of the family. He was only given a series of tapes and he wrote the book based on the tapes. And so when I read Lloyd Auerbuch's book, another, um, See You on the Other Side alumni, when I read Lloyd's book and he talked about why the Amityville horror was a hoax, he was using evidence of the moon, you know, like the, you know, when they were talking about a full moon, it wasn't the full moon. When they were talking about, uh, he was um, finding like cracks in their story based on like weather and science and things. You know, and he Boy, was doing that. Boy, that sounds familiar. It does. And well, Allison, you and Sam Maranto, who we're going to go to Sam's story next. Sam Maranto is the head of Illinois MUFON. Um, we're going to talk about that next. But um, the reason that I thought it was interesting is because Jay Anson, he's talking about the process of writing. And remember, Jay Anson only died a couple years after the book was released. Like, he didn't live a long time. He didn't even live long enough to probably enjoy the fame and the money that he would have gotten from the movies and stuff. But Jay Anson writes, he's like, yeah. So I don't get the weather right. So, and this is before Lloyd Auerbach was trying to um, was trying to bust it for like uh, being a hoax. He was saying, "Yeah, I didn't pay attention to the moon, or the weather, or anything like that. Like I just did what I could do to make it the best story I could." And you're thinking, "Okay, Jay Anson is not a reporter. Yeah. He's not He's a novelist. here to right. tell the." He's a novelist. Yeah. He's not there to try to create this true News. story to get it as accurate as possible. That us as paranormal investigators, that's what we want, right? We want the truth so that we can figure out if there is something paranormal here. He's like, I just want to write a good story, man. And when I read that, I was like, oh, <laughs> like it just made so much sense that I figured. I mean, yeah, well, that's the divide we come to. I think so many people today are just in it for a good story. Not that it's not that I don't like good stories. I just think stories are better when you give me some truth. Right, right, exactly. But yeah, there's plenty of fiction stories out there, so we don't need to to create yeah. <laughs> I mean, we let let's let the the truth be the truth, you know, at least right. in its purest form. You can make, right. you know, you, you, fiction can be inspired by it, but like if you're reporting it, then actually report the details and the facts. <laughs> yeah. Right. 
Amen, sister. Amen. <laughs> okay, so I, I, I kind of just wanted to bring that up because when we talk about, like, we lionize these old guys, and I just want to make sure that um, we keep everything in perspective because everybody's human, and when we're searching for the final thing, which is as many facts and truth as we can get at, we always have to keep those those kind of things in mind. Um, I kind of wanted to tell a story that I just remembered today. I didn't even remember it. But it was but beamed into your head. January 3rd. <laughs> right. Well, it was. So January 3rd, 2008. And this is why I think this is interesting. It's because, number one, I had no recollection of this whatsoever. And number two, there was a coincidence later. So this is what I wrote in my journal that day. Uh, at noon of January 3rd, 2008, my wife and I go to the Cabo Rojo Lighthouse. Now, Cabo Rojo is on the southwestern edge of Puerto Rico. And Puerto Rico is about the size of Connecticut. So it's, you know, if you get the southwestern edge, I mean, it's, it's a couple hundred miles long. Um, and we're in the southwestern edge in the Car- Caribbean. And Cabo Rojo is like this white sand beach. It's it's almost like the beach from the movie. The um, the beach? Yeah. Who's the director? <laughs> Train spotting. Uh, Guy Ritchie. The British guy. No? No, no. Train Spotting was uh, Slumdog Millionaire. Oh, I can't think of him. Shallow Grave. Anyway, but the beach movie, it's it's like that. It's this really super blue water, calm waves, white sand. Um, and then some dude will some dude will pull his boat like right up to it, like jamming <laughs> music and like throwing beer cans Aww. on the side. So it's not as it's it's a very pretty area, but people also but use it's it. It's not always pristine. It is definitely not always pristine, but we're at this beach and it's a, it's a beautiful day and we go to the lighthouse there. It's a famous lighthouse in Cabo El Faro and uh, the director of the lighthouse is David. The views are spectacular. It's hot as balls. Um, you know, it's eight, high 80s. And so I write this down after I saw it. Um, we're, you know, walking around the lighthouse. I'm taking pictures. But then I see this object far away in the sky, and it almost looks like a blimp, but it was tremendously high in the sky, so high and so far away that we, we couldn't be quite sure of what it was. It definitely didn't look like a cloud, even though it was completely white and high enough to be a cloud. But the rest of the clouds had some kind of softness and transparency to them, and this cloud didn't. It was definitely unusual, and I thought it might be a UFO. Actually, what I thought it might be was some kind of alien or government ship that was up there and, dis- and disguised nice. as a cloud. Whoa, dude. But it was just just different enough so that if you looked at it, you could tell. I was trying to take a picture of it, but I, I couldn't get a good picture. And I was so enamored with the natural beauty of the place, I forgot about the unnatural beauty of what we were seeing. It was probably a cloud. Or yeah, that's a- what they want you to do. Or maybe a, it was probably a cloud or maybe a blimp that was very high, uh, but it looked just different enough from the other clouds to be interesting. Now, I wrote that down at like 12.15 or, you know, whenever it happened. An hour later, we're like driving to our next, you know, location after spending some time in the beach and going to the lighthouse. And it's it's the extraterrestrial highway. It's named <laughs> the extraterrestrial highway. That's um, awesome. In Puerto Rico. So, like, I see you... I mean, I mean, I don't know if it was a UFO. It was just a cloud that didn't look like the rest of the clouds. Well, no, it was it, a UFO then, because uh, you couldn't identify enough. it. Yes, definitely unidentified. And it struck me enough that I had to write something down about it. And then an hour later, we're driving, and this is the extraterrestrial highway where a ton of UFO sightings have happened in Puerto Rico previously. And Puerto Rico is in the Bermuda And is that tra- near the world-famous Arecibo uh, telescope as well? It's No, it's on the other side of the island. <laughs> oh, bummer. <laughs> 
Um, I wanted to connect those two. But that doesn't mean you connect connect it to the Bermuda Triangle because as... um, So one of my favorite Bermuda Triangle stories actually happens not very far away from Cabo Rojo as someone's flying back from uh, Santiago in the Dominican Republic. And this happened in 1980. And Jose Maldonado Torres was flying a small plane back from Santiago to San Juan. And to get there, you got to go around Cabo Rojo in this area. And by the time you get to Cabo Rojo, then you're, the next part is you're over the island the rest of the time. But before he was over the island, um, just as he's getting back into uh, Puerto Rican airspace, uh, the official report states that he's complaining about a weird object. He could see this weird thing, and he said it was interfering with his navigational equipment. That was the last message they got. The plane was never seen again, and uh, two people, him and his co-pilot, disappeared that day. And the thing is, the father of the other passenger of the plane was an assistant chief in the Puerto Rico Aero, Aero Police, and he was an accomplished pilot himself, and he was one of the people who was leading flights searching for his son. And his personal affidavit as he, that he gave the, uh, you know, the, the Aerospace Commission, the, he says that you know when they were listening to the tape, he said they described the weird object that was interfering with their navigational equipment as glowing. And that was the last report they got. And, um, you know, they, they kind of disappeared in that area. So that's what I thought was, you know, I thought it was kind of an interesting thing um, when I, the, that I had seen. And I didn't even know that story when I was there. I was not thinking about UFOs when I was there. It was 12, so I wasn't drinking yet. And uh, I saw something weird. And I for completely forgot I saw something weird that I had to write about it. And then um, 12, you know, 12 years later, I'm just looking through my journal. I'm like, oh, I bet somebody emailed me something about UFOs or something like that. And then I found that story. And then I'm like, wait. But then there's the Bermuda Triangle story as they were reentering Puerto Rican airspace. So they'd be coming from that direction. Um, anyway, Cabo Rojo, place for UFOs, place for beautiful white sand beaches. Yeah, yeah. Well, and Puerto Rico is known for UFOs elsewhere on the other side, too, with the Arecibo telescope, which was famously portrayed in the X-Files. Yes, X-Files. And that's also where the uh, the climax to the movie Goldeneye takes place. That's right. Pierce Brosnan and Sean Bean fight uh, at the Arecibo radio telescope. And it's funny. So Goldeneye comes out in like 1995. I think it was we were freshmen in college when. And... um. I had a professor of astronomy that year, or not, I, I'm sorry, a teaching assistant in astronomy who had just spent six months in Arecibo while they were shooting Goldeneye. And he said that he's like, he's like, oh, it's pretty cool they did it. He's like, Pierce Brosnan's kind of a crybaby, though. And I'm like, uh. what? He's like, he's just always complaining about stuff. And I'm just like, Pierce Brosnan, you're breaking my heart. And it just made me laugh to hear that. I forgot that he's like, oh, yeah, they, you know, he's like, I was there when they shot Goldeneye. I'm like, what? Awesome. I'm like, James. And you Bond. have to remember what a dandy he was during uh, Remington Steel <laughs> and his old, yes. his, his, his younger years. So I can believe that. I, you're right. I can believe it, too. Um, kind of a namsy pamsy. You know, uh, we haven't had a chance to listen to, I wanted to say, uh, we were talking about uh, Sam Maranto from Illinois, uh, MUFON, and I want to play you guys Sam's uh, UFO story that he called in and shared with us. So let's take a listen to that right now. Hello, you guys. This is Sam, and uh, you wanted a UFO story? Well, this was our account, Sam and Julie, 
back on Friday, May the 2nd of 2003. We were driving southbound on LaGrange Road at the intersection of 159th Street in Orland Park. To our left, in the southeast section, above the Pet Boys, Julie noticed a large orange orb pop in and all sorts of discharges around it, much like looking like fireworks displayed all the way around it and then oozing from the bottom. Small orbs exactly the same color. So we watched it and it was in the sky while we were sitting there at the light and as we moved away we were watching it for probably about seven minutes and as it moved it went through the complete spectrum of light and it changed color. It moved across the sky going westbound and going southwest and then disappeared. The whole observation was somewhere between five and seven minutes until it was completely out of range. I called the police department to see if there were any reports. They gave me um, uh, notice that it, there were absolutely no reports, but yet I received a call later stating that yes, there were reports, but it was uh, children with balloons. And when I asked the person, why uh, did they make that statement? They says they were told to. And uh, that was it in a very brief summary. And by the way, we had a north to south wind at 13 miles an hour. There were multiple witnesses. We weren't the only ones seeing it. Thank you. Bye. Oh, man. Now, uh, Sam, first of all, Sam's a super nice guy and he's a lot of fun. Um, and uh, we've we've enjoyed talking to him on the podcast before and at paranormal conventions. But the thing about that... And that most sto- importantly... He's a meticulous researcher. Yes. And he doesn't take anything at face value. If you listen to the end of that call, he goes in and says, well, there was a north. He right. He talks about the direction <laughs> of the wind and the wind it's amazing. speed. And so it's like he, go, he goes in and he tells that. He gives you the direction of the wind, the wind speed. And also the fact that he had somebody called in to move on or whatever, calls him and says that, you know, they had seen those objects too. And they were told to tell them that it was children with balloons. And so, not only so that story has two levels. Number one, Sam saw something weird over a Pet Boys, you know, and but number two, that um, somebody had told another experiencer that it was just balloons, and if anybody asks asks you about it, it's just balloons. You know, that makes me think about you know the X Files episode where uh, <laughs> Jose Chung from outer space oh, Jose Chung's from outer space where like Jesse the body that's Ventura, my favorite <laughs> mine too and Jesse the body Ventura and Alex Trebek show up as men in black classic awesome. and uh, Jesse Jesse the body Ventura is like what you saw was the planet Venus and <laughs> you know I'm trying as a as a five foot eight guy I'm trying to tell everybody what a six foot six guy like I'm trying to sound like a six foot six guy who has a you're doing a pretty good yeah. job very different diaphragm <laughs> in order to create sound. But the thing is, like that makes me think. You know, somebody told like they call the you know Sam. What I like about Sam too is he calls he sees something he calls the police because what might it be? Yeah. Well, even if it's children's balloons. Or even if it's alien, like he calls the cops. Like you see something that makes you crap your pants. You call, like we talked about, but with our mother a couple of weeks ago, when we were talking about their ghost story, they heard this knocking at the door. They were living across the street from a um, a cemetery, and uh, a knocking at the door in the middle of the night gets a phone call to the cops. Even though Bob had yeah, his shotgun, I mean, is ready to cap when- it ass. <laughs> 
when when um witnesses do that, it gives their story an extra level of credibility. They're willing to go on the record. And it's sad that so few stories have that component because it really makes you wonder. I mean, I didn't call the cops because, all right, what I saw didn't seem to be of any danger to anyone. But, you know, when you see something that, you know, puts the fear of God in you, what do you do? You call the cops. So when people report seeing extraordinary, terrifying things, well, you know, your next question to them would be, what did you do? Did you call the cops? Right. And if they didn't, why didn't they call? Well, Sam Maranto obviously doesn't have that problem. Because uh, the thing is, he's he's not going to report it to MUFON. He is MUFON. Yeah, yeah. So, like, he, he's got to go to the next level. He's not just right. like, he's like, oh, I'll just send it to MUFON. Like, yeah. no, you are MUFON. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, so I kind of, you know, I wanted to read a story that was written by one of our patrons. Woohoo! Yay! And uh, and we read it. You know, last time we were taking in stories, we we did his one of his ghost stories from uh, his book Stranger Than Fiction: A Skeptic's Journey. And now, when you say like, are you going to call the authorities or whatnot? With this particular story, uh, this happened with people on like a um, an air force base. So when they talk about calling the authorities, I mean they are the authorities. They are the people you would call when something like this goes down. And I know that Chuck himself is working on a, a, another book about uh, ghost stories that happen to law enforcement officers. And awesome, yeah. I love so, books like that. Yes, yeah. And so, but this is from Chuck's book, Strange in the Fiction. He gave us permission to read a story, and uh, let's get into it. So, stationed at McClellan Air Force Base. Now, this is AF McClellan AFB is in California. Now it's McClellan Park. It's not an Air Force base. It was decommissioned in 2003, but we're going to go back here um, a couple of decades, uh, back to when Chuck was a younger man and stationed uh, there. This is a story called The Phantom Rider. My best friend at McClellan was a sergeant, a few years older than me, who I worked with a lot. Freddie, as I'll call him now, had been in the USAF since he was 18 and had been stationed in Italy and Panama, as well as Nellis Air Force Base, not far from the infamous Area 51 so many ufologists are obsessed with. Having gone on the USAF at the age of 22, I tended to be older than most of the airmen of my rank, and as a result, ended up hanging out with guys my age or slightly older. Freddie and I worked well together and spent time together on duty at his house, where his wife and kids always welcomed me in. We spent a lot of time talking on duty, mostly about politics and religion, but eventually the subject turned to the paranormal. When he was stationed at Nellis Air Force Base, Freddie had often gotten an assignment working the bomb range. He explained that sightseers would occasionally come onto the vast base to catch a glimpse of aircraft and had to be chased away for their own safety. While it took me a while to get Freddie to talk about Nellis, the wait was well worth it, but surprisingly not about UFOs, but rather supernatural events. Freddy's first story involved the Phantom Rider, a motorcyclist who wore all black who could frequently be seen in the bomb range and had to be chased away. The problem was, no one could catch him. My friend had chased the rider several times, marveling at just how good this dirt biker was. In general, when such a chase was initiated, units would be advised to break off and let the rider go. This led Freddy to theorize the rider was not a civilian after all, but a member of the security forces for one of the many classified sites on Nellis. Sites he would not tell me about, but which many Air Force bases have. One day, however, Freddy decided he was going to find out for sure and would not give up his chase of the Phantom Rider. He pursued him through the desert, 
finally into a series of canyons that Freddie knew had no exit. As before, the rider was just a little faster and eventually got out of sight, rounding a corner and vanishing. When Freddie rounded the same corner, he was sure he'd have his prey cornered. But the small box canyon was empty. No rider, no body, no nothing. Freddie was baffled. There was simply no way out of the canyon. I asked if he was sure he'd not lost him somewhere else. Freddie admitted that was a possibility, then proceeded to tell me about a nighttime pursuit of the rider, where again, he refused to give up, and it nearly cost him his life. This chase began with Freddie sighting what looked to be dual headlights, not the single headlight of a motorcycle, driving around in the desert at night. He responded to the area, lights flashing, and closing the distance, convinced that he could catch a car. The trespassers weren't giving up, though. They took off at high speed, trying to lose Freddy the same way the Phantom Rider had. While security police are the main security for Air Force bases, there are areas they, even they are not allowed to go. In Germany, we had a secure building used by the weapons inspectors that regularly went to the Soviet Union as part of the U.S.-USSR treaty. The building had its own security, who were decidedly not military. Similarly, in California, we had a few interesting buildings that we didn't have security clearances to enter. I would imagine every Air Force base is like this, and Nellis was no exception, with large areas marked off as a no-go, even for the SPs, the security people. Freddy's chase covered a large area, but eventually turned south when the trespassers made a beeline for one of the off-limit areas. Freddie knew he wasn't supposed to enter those areas, but he wasn't ready to give up. He maintained his pursuit, his target always just far enough away that he couldn't make out any detail between the two lights it had. Suddenly, Freddie's partner yelled out. Freddie saw the danger and slammed on his brakes, barely stopping at the edge of a canyon. He had almost driven off a cliff in his mad pursuit of the mysterious intruders. But worse than crash he had narrowly avoided, Freddie was baffled to see that the two lights he had been chasing didn't crash. They continued on as if driving on a flat surface, completely defying gravity. <laughs> Freddie watched in disbelief as the lights curved around, suspended in the air, then came back towards him where he had stopped. The lights came almost close enough to make out details, but then abruptly turned again, one going to the left, the other two to the right. They streaked away rapidly, fading from sight as he watched. That's awesome. <laughs> right. So we have like phantom lights being chased by the military at Nellis Air Force Base. Wild. Yeah. I'm like, this yeah, story yeah. And If you like that story, the whole book is really good. There's a ton of just interesting, weird stuff. And you can get it on Kindle for like $2. So yeah, it's, it's a completely yeah. worth the money. Right. So that does remind me of the story I was going to tell. So I think this is a good segue. Yes. So, of course, I wish this was my story. It's not. Uh, I, I was an editor on a movie, uh, and the director was Chris Hatton, and, and this actually happened to his friend. So we can trace the lineage. It's not a totally lost friend of a friend generation story. Uh, but um, So the, the story goes that this man and his wife were in Vegas for a vacation for a week. And, uh, you know, if you're in Vegas for a week, sometimes you just need a vacation from Vegas. <laughs> it's, it's a bit intense. So, uh, you know, the, the man said... Well, I've never been this close to Area 51. Let's, you know, I know we can't go in, but let's just see how close we can get and see what we can see. And his wife really wasn't into it, but she went along for it because uh, what are you going to do? Um, and th they drive out there and it's not that close to Vegas. It's still a couple hour drive into the darkness of the desert. And as they're getting closer and closer, uh, they're on this lonely, dark desert road, totally alone, or so they seemed. And frequently suddenly headlights would turn on right behind them 
and then a black SUV with blacked out windows would speed by. And they always took that to be like, hey, we are watching you. We can see you and you can't see us. It was kind of a warning from the security uh, staff around Area 51. So I'm like, all right, all right. Well, you know, we're just driving down the road. And uh, and uh, unbelievably, they end up seeing more than they could ever have wished to see. Because yeah, they see a light on the side of the road at ground level. Um, and then they come up on it and they see it's... an a full UFO parked in the desert, not that far off the road, and there's the, the, just like Wait, you would when you say a UFO, flying saucer, a craft, a okay. craft. Yes, yeah, because it's not flying at that point; it's an unidentified parked object. Uh, <laughs> and but it's saucer shaped. A saucer shaped object, and just like you would draw it up in a, a comic book or some 1950s idea, uh, the, the ramp is down, and there's alien beings removing boxes and cargo from the ship. And so they're sitting there just dumbfounded watching this. Oh, man. And then suddenly, a bright ball of light appears in front of their car. And it kind of just hovers, like, over the hood. And it starts to drift away from them. And so the guy puts the vehicle back in gear and starts to follow this orb. And and uh, and it accelerates, and he accelerates. And suddenly, he finds himself going over 100 miles an hour, chasing this ball of light down this desert road. And then the light shuts off. Like, oh. What the hell was that? So he turns around to go back, and now the, the craft has moved way further off the road, but he can still see way in the distance that there's something going on. This craft is still there. And um, that's when he realized, though, that... And, and, you know, obviously he doesn't know. Is this a government thing, or is this a, an alien thing? Uh, but he or thought... Is it a Hollywood movie thing? Probably not that. <laughs> uh, Sounds like Mars Attacks. The, uh, totally. But it he, does. It's at that point that he realized that this orb that he was chasing after was probably just meant to lure him away, and it did its job. And so that also is wondering. He he wonders is that an alien thing or is that a government thing? Um, I don't know. It was just so fast. The, the, the thing that really boggles my mind, though, and you don't really know unless you're the one there, is you want to see a UFO, and boom, you're watching a UFO yeah. and aliens, and then something else distracts you and draws your attention away. And uh, I think, Mike, it takes me back also to you talking about the weird cloud that unnerved you in some way that that's not natural. That's not just that's something there's something suspicious about it. However, you then got distracted by the other stuff around you. So you you do wonder if there's some sort of a a psychic impression, Mm -hmm. little mind control, whatever you want to say. But yeah, I just love that story. Yeah, something some force out there lulling us into complacency. Well, and, and you know, Scott, that's a that's a really great point. I mean, that idea. First of all, you see something, you're like, "Oh, that's weird," and then like that was a, like it's one of the most beautiful places in the Caribbean. So of course, I'm gonna be like, "Oh, look at the water," you know, <laughs> like. <it. laughs> um, but but this makes me think about probably one of the most compelling UFO stories that I'd ever heard, and this is from um, Brad from Canada, who's a Facebook friend. And we met Brad at the Michigan Paranormal College. Oh, yeah, this is great. And and so Brad, uh, like he, his particular story was that he was out camping, like in the in the, Cana- in the wilds of Canada, uh, with his husband, and they're out there, and uh, they wake up in the middle of the night, and they you know hear some weird stuff, and then they go out and just outside their tent, and they look up in the sky, and they see the stars moving. And he's like, dude, 
you know, because people drink a beer or whatever, but like a couple beers, they're not going to make the stars move. Um, and he's like, yeah, the stars were moving and we just saw them. He, he, he said, we watched it for a half an hour and then we went back in the tent and went back to bed and we didn't talk about it. Um, we didn't talk about it for a while. And then like one day we just kind of remembered it and started talking about it. Like, remember we woke up in the middle of the night and watched the stars like dance. And his husband was like, yeah, I do. And they had this shared experience where it seemed like at the time, they're like, this is an incredible, amazing experience. And afterwards, they kind of forgot about it. Like you just finished watching an episode of the, you know, the X-Files or you just finished watching a TV show. And it's that kind of thing that we say, like, distracted by something. Yeah. Or compartmentalized or like that there's. There's some architects of our reality, like makes me think of the movie Dark City, where, you know, you start to have an inkling that there's some kind of uh, artificial machinations behind everything that you see. And then once you get that inkling, these aliens come by and go, sleep (laughs) now. (laughs) That's it. You're like, I got to go to work. Hey, what time is it? And uh, you're just back to normalcy. And um, I mean, that's the, the idea of the machinery elves, the people working behind the scenes. That's obviously something that, who, you know, that people who have done a lot of LSD <laughs> uh, talk about. But that also doesn't mean that there isn't something to it. Um, you know, my theory, of course, is that we'll see something amazing or something will happen and then uh, we'll forget about it or something, or it'll just like kind of fade into the background. And that's the machinery elves coming in and reprogramming uh, us. Yeah. They're they're knocking us they're knocking us out with the smell <laughs> of sulfur. As Joshua Cutchin talks about the smell of sulfur, um, brimstone. The you know if you guys don't know what sulfur smells like, eat a bunch of eggs and then gas oh. a bunch, and then you'll know. Um, <laughs> it smells like a fart. Right. It's well. Okay. I'm trying to get my three year old not to say fart, Allison. So. Oh, sorry. Right. We prefer the term. She's going to be studying this so carefully. It like a this episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just no. That, it just makes me laugh because she's like, she'll be like, I farted, and I'll be like, we say I tooted. Excuse me. But either way, or. Uh, what I meant to say was that smell of sulfur comes in, it knocks us it, like it, it, it knocks us out and, and puts us in a program mode. And then they come in, ah. they fix whatever's wrong with our equipment and then they leave. And then we're like, I saw Bigfoot. Yeah. So we don't know because we, we're just watching it on the film, but men in black, those flashlights uh, also emitted a sulfur smell. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> you have to see the 40 version to get that. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that makes, to me, that idea makes sense, though. Um, that idea that, uh, you know, when we think about program mode, because we talk about hypnosis, we talk about hallucinogenic, not necessarily hallucinogenic, but we talk about, um, yeah, hallucinogenic drugs. Um, we talk about meditation. You know, you say that these are the things that can help you uh, change your neural pathways. And so... Um, we're talking about all these shortcuts that change your neural pathways. Well, what if some of those shortcuts end up being, uh, you know, somebody giving us new programming? Because that, a lot of it is what it is, is programming. And so well, I just think it's an interesting thing. And we know that the olfactory uh, sense is, is deeply connected with mem- memory. So there's that. Right. Well, 
olfactory with memory and plus olfactory with like, we can only recognize so many smells. And so um, the fact that everybody knows the sulfur egg smell, like I'm not saying that it's aliens, (laughs) but it's aliens. Yeah, yeah, because because everybody's not your your uh, uh, relative, so they they wouldn't really know what sulfur right. smells like. <laughs> you would think because they're not, not me. A Sunspot fan for hours. Okay, I've got a couple more things to talk about, but let's visit um, our Patreon Ned. He had a UFO experience back in the 1960s, and so we want to make sure uh, we talk about Ned's um, thing. And so let's go listen to it. Right now, everybody. <laughs> hey, Dr. Ned! The thing that I, uh, I've never been really one to um, see unusual things. Uh, I did see a possible UFO in 1965 or so at summer camp. It was up in the sky, uh, just lights spinning around. It couldn't be anything uh, we know on this planet. Okay, lights spinning around. That we couldn't see on this planet at, at summer camp in 1965. Cool. And also, uh, I think Ned sent a message too, right? I don't know if he went into more depth about it. But the idea, I mean, he's a cardiologist. Ned's not like a wild, I mean, he's kind of a wild man because he knows how to have beer. But the thing is, is that uh, strange brief lights in the sky that did a fast circle that no jet could do. No crafts were seen. It was a clear sky at summer camp. He was outside walking. And so it's nice always to see when you talk about scientists, like the guy that has to take care of your heart, Ned, um, that he could see a UFO and you'd be like, okay, Ned, I believe you. I still need, I still need you to make sure I'm breathing tomorrow. Um, but it's it's that particular kind of thing. So th- thanks for the story, Doctor Ned. We appreciate that. And obviously, in every podcast, you get a shout out. So I'm going to give you a we shout out. We love you, Doctor Ned. Shout out right now. <laughs> One, two, three. Ufta to you. Ufta. Some more interesting things. So uh, when we were using Twitter to promote the podcast, I would tweet out to people who used to either like Darkness Radio or like uh, Coast to Coast AM or anything like that. And I would just say like, hey, if you like those kind of things, let me introduce you to our podcast, The Other Side, where we write songs. Because George Norrie, Dave Schrader, uh, Tim, they're all nice guys, but they ain't singing for you. Wendy and I are. Yeah, they don't know how to write a song. <laughs> right. To save so like, their lives. So I talked to this guy uh, named Michael Fricker. And he's up in Alberta, Canada. So he's up there in the great white north. And um, he sends me like a, you know, he just emails me. And he's like, hey, I know we saw each other on Twitter. But I just want to let you know that um, I've had a lot of weird experiences happening to me. And he sends me a PDF file called Glimpses into my Twilight Zone. And so uh, one of the interesting stories I thought was uh, good was called Chalk Rings in the Sky. I was living in the trailer court in the town of Dominion near the beach with a dirt road running down the middle. This is in Canada, so Dominion, uh, probably a lot of maple syrup, and uh, the Mackenzie brothers live up there. On a warm, sunny summer day, I was playing with a friend, and he had to go home or something for a few minutes. While he was gone, I stood in the center of the road and looked up at the puffy clouds above. There I saw what appeared to be a series of concentric white chalk rings, reminding me of a coil stovetop burner. When I picture that, I picture... um, like you know, think about like a cartoon or whatever, uh, with the you know like a stovetop burner like going and like the little rings popping up from it. So that's what I was thinking there uh, for that stovetop thing. So that's that's what I envisioned was the little rings popping out like little smoke rings in the sky. 
Silently it moved between the clouds, the space between rings the same blue as the sky. It went into a cloud and then reappeared, moving east, always appearing as a flat circle, until it silently flashed away, becoming small so quick it almost seemed to vanish. I watched it to reappear for a while, but then my friend startled me by calling my name from behind. I turned and asked him if he had seen the rings. He had no idea what I was talking about and wondered where I'd been. And wondered where I'd been. He had been looking for me for something like five to ten minutes, including looking on the road. I have no memory of leaving it. It was the following year that I learned the term UFO, and I heard about Project Blue Book. Although I've looked and kept my ears open, it was only until a couple of years ago that I'd met someone who'd said they'd seen similar rings to that one. So I was like, okay, when I first read the story, I was like, okay, he saw some rings in the sky. And then he's like, and then my yeah. dad said, I couldn't find you. Wow. Like, All right. So then we got missing time. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> but stories like this are what make me think about the machinery elves and make me think about the programming and we only see what we think we're going to see. This is from his childhood. And he doesn't connect it. He just says, like, I've seen a bunch of weird stuff. He doesn't connect it in, in this way. But my earliest memory is waking up sometime after midnight in my grandparents' house in Neal's Harbor at the age of three. Moonlight or streetlight came through the only window. My room was in back, um, containing stairs to the ground floor, and the room my parents were using as their bedroom. So I get up and I, I try to walk into my parents' room, and I stand there in the dark until my father wakes up enough to notice me and tells me to go back to bed. I turn around, and I came face to face with Grover from Sesame Street. Standing there completely solid and slightly taller than me, he smiled and seemed friendly and harmless, so I started talking to him. My father asked what I was doing, and I told him who I was talking to, and he just told me to go to bed. So I told Grover goodnight, I walked around him and back to bed. When I was 21 and living in Banff, Alberta, my roommates called me Grover because I reminded them of him. Wait. Okay, that connection uh, yeah. is <laughs> Well, also, are you saying Grover's an alien? No, but I'm. No, I am not saying Grover's an alien. But I'm saying that uh, I'm just wondering how that related to uh, to the UFO topic. Oh, I think it was the idea that he's seen weird stuff all of his life, and um, when he was, the first memory is him seeing Grover as a real creature in his father's yeah. and mother's room and then later on he sees rings in the sky and disappears and he's got several other things they gotcha. weren't necessarily ufo things but i well, was trying but they could be they could be screen memories like uh you know you know um of course uh the famous whitley Strieber uh and communion talks about seeing owls um all his life as as a you know, from childhood on, seeing owls in weird places. And then at some point, he realizes they aren't owls. This is just the camouflage that the aliens use. Uh, they put up um, something I'd be familiar with uh, in in place of an image of what they really look like, which would terrify so me. So th that story, the Grover story, reminded me so much. Uh, the guy that I did some of my first uh, paranormal investigating with, uh, he talked about, uh, as a little kid, probably the same age, seeing a little creature that looked like E.T., and it had a syringe, though, 
and it would kind of like stand over his head and slowly oh release the syringe so that a single drop of something would come down and hit him, hit his forehead, and then he would be totally paralyzed. Oh. So, and it's interesting when when you were a little child dealing with these things. Yeah, I know. And then what? What, what after that? You know, he, he said he would feel. The, That's not cool. He at said all. he would feel the tingle sensation throughout his body, and he just oh was gosh. totally paralyzed. Um, now, as a little kid, are you like just trying to associate like, okay, this thing looks kind of like this mm. thing I've seen on this TV show. So therefore, now it is Grover. Now it is E.T. Uh, were they actually being visited? Who the hell knows? But uh, very wild. Wow, that is very cool. But all these stories that we've just touched on now, they sound a lot like alien abductee stories. There's just many, many Yes. Uh, Stories just like this from experiencers uh, world over. But yeah, that that idea though that uh, you forget about them—that's the you know the men in black. That's the little thing that you know that smells like sulfur. So the men in black <laughs> fart on you, and you forget you just talk to them. All right, you know I think we got some great uh, listener stories plus personal stories. I mean, it was fun to go back, and I had a UFO story I didn't even know about. Is there anything else anybody wants to particularly talk about today? We're already at an hour 20, so. Well, it's been fun. I, I love hearing these stories. And we should encourage people, if you have any strange stories, we love strange stories of every stripe. That's why the number to call them in is 414-Fortian for Charles Fort, who loved Fortiana. That's what uh, the anomalies of life of any variety. He loved them all. We do too. So call in your stories to 414-F-O-R-T-E-A-N. And the number uh, is, uh, once again, 414-367-8326. Yes. We're going to do this again in an upcoming episode where we're going to get in everybody's like, maybe like we've done ghosts, we've done UFOs. Maybe we should look for well, actually, maybe we'll just take in a, a grab bag of stories, and if we get yeah. if we get them far enough advanced, we'll have a chance to like kind of do research and see what kind of similar stories there were. Yeah, during that time. So, so if you have a date, uh, you know, if you have like a a time of year, you know, make sure to leave as much information as you can. If you get cut off by the recording, just call on back, and we can knit the story together. So uh, you can call anytime. We have this line open all the time for your stories. So uh, please call day or night and just leave your messages uh, on my voicemail, 41440. And then we'll be able to retrieve them. If you leave your contact information, we can call you if you have any questions. But, you know, feel free to leave everything right on the, the message there. You can also email them if you don't feel like talking. You can also uh, email. Yeah, and we'll read them aloud. Obviously, we're not, we can do a dramatic reading. Um, and if we have enough time, we'll put in some sound effects too. Anyway. Yeah, so we love your stories of, of, of aliens, of UFOs, uh, Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, ghosts, uh, things that you just don't know what they are. Uh, just, you know, call those in. You know, maybe you've had a pressing ghost experience where at night you've been overcome by sleep paralysis, but it doesn't seem quite like that is enough of an explanation. Those are great stories that are we love the old hags as well. <laughs> we yes, obviously we love old hags here <laughs> yes. on the See You on the Other Side podcast and American Ghost Walks and What's Your Ghost Story and everybody. Um, I just had a really good time today talking with yeah. you guys, and it was fun bringing up these old stories. And everybody who's been joining us live, thank you, thank you very much. 
And uh, we're gonna we'll probably do this again next week at the same time if it works for everybody. And we'll keep on. Uh, everybody's stuck at home, so let's keep on staying weird because uh, uh, even though I know it's a it's a it's a very strange time for everybody, that doesn't mean the ghosts and the aliens and that Bigfoot don't have Corona. <laughs> so he's still out there too. So you guys have a great week, and we'll talk to you on the other side. Well, something I said in this episode is that I'm going to punch the next person that says the phrase Space Brothers to me. Well, guess what? It's me. I'm the next person who's saying Space Brothers. And it's because the most ridiculous UFO hunt we've ever been on was at the Michigan Paracon in 2017. We all stood outside in the parking lot while Andrea Perone of The Conjuring fame sang Sentimental Journey to the lights in the sky. It was ridiculous as it sounds. The only reason I took it even a little seriously at first is because Dave Schrader from Darkness Radio and The Holzer Files and Amy Bruni from Kindred Spirits both said that Andrea could really make some crazy stuff happen. Well, I don't know what they were smoking, uh, but we didn't see it. You can see our immediate reaction in a Facebook Live video at othersidepodcast.com slash 292 in the show notes. Obviously, it was hard for me to take that uh, without a million grains of salt. So for this episode's song, we decided to ask our alien friends for a little favor. So here's Sunspot with the Paranormal Track of the Week. Space Brothers. Talking at light speed From that black hole you got on your face Cause when you open your mouth Time slows down And I just wanna escape Oh, you pissed me off on a cosmic scale So I don't want E.T. to come in peace Well, the first thing he should do Is abduct you Get you off this planet for keeps All these lights in the sky Just watching us like a zoo Well, if the Space Brothers want to do something for me I wish they would anal probe you Watching us like a zoo 
the space brothers wanna do something for me I wish they would probe you Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Whoops, before we end the episode, I simply have to thank all of our Patreon community members. This has been a really interesting month for us because in spite of the challenges provided by the current pandemic situation, our community is growing and we are so thankful and so excited to welcome to our community a whole bunch of new people. So I'm going to do a shout out to Iris, Terry, Abby, Megan, Sharon, Pamela, Tim, Linda, JJ, Lexi, and Anita. I want to welcome you all. We're so excited to have you and we can't wait to get everybody together in this month's Hangout. Now, I also want to thank Dr. Ned, who is at the level where he gets this executive producer shout out. Thank you so much, Ned, for being such a strong supporter of us. Thank you to everyone in our community. You guys make it so exciting for us to continue producing new episodes and songs and videos. And we are really excited because we're going to be able to do more and more and more now that our community is growing so much. So we hope that you're all safe and healthy. Again, thanks so much to everyone and have a great week. I tooted, excuse me.